0: Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Diz Unplug Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. So Craig, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Michael? Doing well. Doing well. Hard to believe we're already at the end of another uh, month season of Connecting with Walt.
1: I know this one, it, it seems like it's gone on for quite a while, but I mean, we've we started recording these like the second week of March, but yes. <laughs> then I mean, with this last one, we're recording it the night before it goes out, so it's just it, this one has spanned. But it's been a very fun month. I'm, it
0: has, and we even got to go to Disneyland and record together. And
1: I, yeah, there was just a lot stuff. of fun moments, a lot of cool things we got to see, got to hear. So I'm, I'm very happy with this month. I'm, I am looking forward to July. But
0: yes, and, and who knows what surprises we'll, we'll, that month will have for us. I'm sure some
1: more, and hopefully a little bit more uh, episodes where we're in the same room actually recording together.
0: That would be great. Well, maybe during Dizpalooza in yes. July. Yeah. We'll be able to do that. Yes, that's so. what I'm hoping. Yeah. And, um, oh, you know, last week I talked about that modular uh, hotel or, or motor inn yeah. that was going up. And I said, you know, the we had recorded on a wednesday actually i th- yeah wednesday last week and i'd said the night of evening before i'd seen that they had just had these rooms stacked all over the place by friday morning the building was up oh wow they had they had stacked them all and they were securing them and all that now they're putting up insulation and all this stuff but it was amazing oh that's cool yeah, yeah. So, um so it was it was a little Walt Disney World construction just right here in our little town. Yeah, no,
1: and <laughs> and I just got excited because on the way home uh from work today, I picked up uh I finally picked up the Walt Disney Life magazine. So Oh, yeah.
0: I ordered it through Amazon. I'm and I'm
1: very excited to start digging through it.
0: There's some good photos in there, and, and it's it's a nice little. I've only scanned it because I've been you know working on lots of stuff, but uh, it's a nice uh, sort of little overview of Walt's uh, life. and all that so it's it's nice for people that just sort of want to learn a little more about them aren't ready yet to start reading some of the biographies yes and things like that but uh, you know investing that much time but so it's very well done i think yeah i get excited every time something
1: new comes out like that so Mm -hmm. i think it'll be a perfect addition to my collection
0: yeah yeah, well in in this episode of Connecting with Walt episode 14 a long journey comes to an end we are uh, we are actually this is a continuation of the last episode where you and I were looking at uh, the construction of Walt Disney World and and so we're we're going to continue that on today and of course that magazine we're talking about uh does have photos from um the construction of Dis- Walt Disney World <laughs> you know in there and um Now, at this point in our story, just to sort of remind folks, Roy Disney was responsible for Walt Disney Productions and the construction of both Disney World and Cal Arts. Um, In a letter to a friend at King Features Syndicate, who is responsible for publishing the Disney comics, um, Roy wrote, I've often thought of retiring. In fact, for the past five years, I've been trying to do so. But now it is out of the question. While in some ways I wish I could retire, when I see how difficult it is for some fellows, I think maybe I am better off working. So that's the way the ball bounces. In 1969, Roy wrote in a letter to his niece, Dorothy Pruder We miss Walt very much around here. I only wish he had been given another ten years to reap some of the rewards of all the labor of forty years before. Certainly, all that this company is today is rightfully attributable to Walt's ideas and drive. But we have made the transition without him very well indeed. And I think the company is now in its soundest condition in its history. And I feel sure the next 10 years will know spectacular and continuing growth. Just the other day, when she reached her 79th birthday, Edna said she had nothing whatever to complain about and everything to be happy and grateful for. But she was darn sick and tired of getting so old. Hmm. Now, although Roy was in good health, he and Edna were growing concerned about the time that remained for both of them. Retirement looked increasingly good to Roy. Roy. However, Roy also knew that before he could give any serious thought to retirement, he had to outline an orderly succession plan. After Walt's passing, the committee system, despite its limitations, had worked fairly well. Uh, The time had come, though, for Roy to determine the future leadership of the company and begin laying the groundwork for succession. The obvious candidates were Card Walker, one of Walt's boys, and Don Tatum, one of Roy's boys, who was loyal to both sides. Roy finally reached the conclusion that neither Walker nor Tatum had the qualities necessary to lead the company. Roy had long admired Clark Bysey, a Disney board member and president of the Bank of America. Hearing that Bysey was about to retire he decided to extend him an offer. Roy and Edna drove to San Francisco and offered Bixby the presidency of Walt Disney Productions. The banker believed he did not have the expertise and knowledge to guide an entertainment giant, and he was also looking forward to retirement. So no amount of pleading and arguing from Roy could change Bisey's mind. Roy was devastated. Edna later told her daughter-in-law, I've never been so scared in my life. He kept driving over the double center line. He was so upset that Bisey had turned him down. He doesn't know what he'll do next. Six months after Walt's passing, Roy made his decision. In a memorandum to the board of directors, he explained his careful consideration to the long-range plans of the company. For some time I had planned to retire or at least materially cut down on my active participation in the management of the company. The death of Walt has forced me to reappraise this plan. I am increasingly mindful of the fact that the Disney name is a vital asset to the company. The people on whose advice I have relied on were unanimous in their view that it is important that the Disney name be retained in top management and that I remain as its chief executive officer and president and chairman of the board. Roy went on to write that he was willing to continue in those capacities, but wanted to be relieved of the day-to-day problems so he could devote his time to, primarily to the overall future planning of the business, particularly overall financing and matters affecting the stockholders and public relations. Roy proposed the board elect Don Tatum, Executive Vice President and Vice Chairman of the Board, with responsibilities for administrative and functional planning. Operational responsibilities would fall to Card Walker as the Executive Vice President for Operations. In making these recommendations, it is my hope and firm belief that Mr. Tatum will demonstrate to all his fitness to succeed me as Chairman of the Board and Chief Executive Officer, and that Mr. Walker will demonstrate his fitness to succeed me as President and Chief Operating Officer of the company. The Board voted in favor of Roy's recommendations. In November 1968, Roy Disney transitioned the presidency of Walt Disney Productions to Don Tatum, who continued as vice president of the board of directors. Card Walker, whom Roy had proposed as the future president a year before, was elected to the new post of executive vice president and chief operating officer.
1: So, oh, sorry, um... Just as a question, and this, uh, to pose to you in that, obviously, Don Tatum came in, and then uh, after Don Tatum, Card Walker did take over as president and CEO for a little while. And then after him, we had Ron Miller. Uh, Why why wasn't Ron Miller taken more into consideration, do you think, uh, earlier on? I mean, obviously he would have still been very young and not as experienced but uh do you, do you, was his name bouncing around to keep um, the disney legacy
0: kind of moving on well he was um he was responsible for the the movie productions okay and the studio at that time along with uh, i think roy e disney was also uh, yeah okay i'm um, um, helping out with that okay so that's where their focus was so it wasn't until later on that you know, Ron moved up in the company. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's see. Um, anyway, so now, so Roy remained as chairman of the board and the chief executive officer. It appeared Roy now had a smooth transition in place for dual leadership of the company when the time came that neither founder would be president to lead the company. Over the course of four years, Roy made dozens of trips to Florida, usually accompanied by Edna. At first, they stayed in the New Hilton Inn in Orlando, then in one of the cottages for executives on Bay Hill. Roy's cottage was next to Joe Fowler's. Roy and Fowler had developed a warm relationship, and they were both close in age, had accomplished much in their lives, and Roy admired the Admiral's can-do attitude. Joe Potter was another favorite of Roy's. Potter's experience commanding huge projects for the Army Corps of Engineers had proven invaluable when converting the wet stretches of Florida land into manageable terrain. Both Fowler and Potter believed no job was too difficult to accomplish on time. Although Roy was in command, he did not deal with any creative matters. That was left to Dick Irvine and Wedd. In everything else, Roy made the final decision. Roy would listen to proposals and then decide what the course of action would be. It was not in a person's best interest to ignore or try to override Roy's decisions. Roy Disney, now in his mid-70s, never complained about overseeing such a huge construction project. He saw the Florida project as an opportunity to expand the company. And more importantly, it was something Walt wanted. This was always foremost in Roy's mind. Now, Roy announced the name of Disney World would be Walt Disney World. So everyone would be reminded of the creative genius behind all that the Disney company had accomplished. As Roy explained, everyone knew Ford cars, but not all people remembered Henry Ford had built the company. Now, you may be surprised to know that most of Roy's executives disagreed with this decision and believed the name of the Florida project should remain Disney World. If a person referred to the project as Disney World in a meeting, Roy would halt the discussion. His eyes would narrow behind his glasses and he would firmly say, I'm only going to say this one more time. I want it called Walt disney world not disney world not disneyland not anything else walt disney world
1: and i think everyone needs to keep that in mind in the future whenever they do refer to walt disney world as just disney world not that Mm -hmm. i mean obviously i'm guilty of it from time to time but you know it is a shame that it that excuse me it's a shame that uh it has been shortened just because of the flow and you know saying one less syllable makes it easier on people it's it's at that point just say w d w it's <laughs> it, it make it easy it's i I do think that the Walt needs to be embraced back into Walt Disney World because oh, it doesn't happen enough anymore.
0: And I think that you know because it's Disneyland, it's Disney World. I mean, I know that, and I know that was the original thinking. But um, now that the now that it was becoming a tribute to Walt, you know that's why they, they, um, you know, Roy added it in there.
1: Hey, I mean, if there was a space in between Disney and Land, I would mm-hmm. even suggest call it Walt Disneyland. But yeah, since it's together and it has been, and that's not going to change. It shouldn't, but. And no, I
0: agree. Yep, there, there. That ends my complaining about it. <laughs> but you know, they kept that tradition on when they, when Tokyo opened its second park. It was Disney Sea. Yeah. So you know, Disneyland, Disney Sea, right next to each other. Yeah. So, so now it had been two years since the Florida Legislature had passed the legislation making it possible for the construction of Walt Disney World, and nothing had been heard from the company since. In April 1969, the press was invited to the new Ramada Inn Tower west of Orlando for a presentation on the master plan for Walt Disney World. There were the standard opening remarks by politicians in Florida's Governor Kirk. Then Roy Disney stepped up to the podium. This is a big day for our company. I know Walt would like to see what his creative team is doing because these are the ideas and plans he began. He began. Everything you see here today is something Walt worked on and began in some way. Then the lights went down, a screen lit up, and Disney artists' depictions of what Walt Disney World was to look like were displayed. Everyone was dazzled. Guests were then transported by bus for a tour of the site. And from what they saw, it was hard to imagine that in less than two and a half years, it would be all transformed into a vacation wonderland and ready to welcome millions of visitors. Right now, it was a wilderness littered with tree stumps and root masses, and with gas balloons marking the future landmarks. Now that the above-ground construction was beginning, Roy's presence in Florida was vital. Decisions had to be made and disputes settled. An early dispute was over the design of the Contempo Hotel that had the working name of Contemporary Hotel. The hotel was designed to be a showpiece of modern architecture as an A-frame with the floors of the rooms rising to the peak. What would be truly innovative and attract a lot of publicity would be the monorail running through the fourth floor concourse. On one side of the debate was the construction team, who claimed it would be impossible to accommodate the monorail inside a hotel. On the other side, Walt's designers said without a monorail, the hotel's interior would resemble quote, a place where the Goodyear blimp comes to mate. <laughs> <coughs> Looking at the design plans, Roy could see that having the monorail would set the hotel apart from the atrium-style hotels favored by the Hyatt chain. Build it, he said. The contemporary hotel was impressive, as the steel's exterior rose 15 stories above the flat Orlando landscape. During one of his visits, Roy stated he wanted to see the view from the top of the hotel, the only way up was by open steel stairways because the elevators had not yet been installed. Roy started up the stairs with men half his age. When he reached the top and saw the view, Roy exclaimed, Wow! This is unbelievable.
1: I mean, and it truly is. It is just... And I mean, at, at that point, you know, it's not even as impressive as it is seeing it up there today. But I just... Yeah, I I can't believe that. That's one of those moments where you wish you could be right there along with oh, them to see that happening. And I like making the final decision to have the monorail th- run through. That's it's brilliant. Think of all the mm-hmm. people today. I I'm, I'm one of them who, you know, part of what made me want to stay there so bad wasn't the going to eat at the restaurants at the contemporary. It was riding that monorail through and being oh, yeah. able to just see it as you're going past. It's it just it, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant.
0: Oh, I agree, and, th- and that's why Karen. One of the reasons Karen and I like to stay at Bay Lake Towers is because just of the history of it, and how innovative it was. But riding that monorail through there, and originally the monorail was supposed to go through the exact center, but due to vibrations, um they did they did realize it had to be anchored. Yeah, on one side, so that's why it is off to the side. But you know, it works. Oh yeah, because absolutely. Because then they had that beautiful grand canyon concourse which unfortunately they've now littered with retail shops and all that but i did you ever see it before it was sort of filled in and it was the 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 grand exposition when you rode through on the monorail
1: i probably did but i probably can't remember it there might be pictures out there somewhere of me as a kid around that area um but my memory is just awful whenever it comes to remembering that stuff. I just... Little bits and pieces still come back yeah. to
0: me. I mean, if there's anything... You know, everything's on the internet. If there's anything on YouTube that maybe somebody uh, videoed of those early years of the monorail running through, you know, uh, uh, them yeah. sitting in the monorail, you know, having a POV. Oh, yeah. Going into that concourse. It, it was incredible huh. when, when the whole concourse just opened up and that beautiful Mary Blair mural... Yeah. Wasn't, was just so visible.
1: I'll have to do some digging around.
0: Yeah. So, um, now, now the labor problems were endless. Orlando didn't have the population to provide the needed labor for the enormous Walt Disney World project. So workers were recruited from the southern and eastern states. Many arrived on their own in pickup trucks towing trailers. Others came from the Kennedy Space Center, who had been laid off in a recent downsizing. And as a result, the project had sort of an unusual melting pot of workers from every segment of society, some of them antagonistic towards each other and towards management. Also, the difference in the work ethics between California and Florida also created problems and delays. When building Disneyland, the studio art directors who had designed the buildings and attractions were accustomed to California workers who provided a full, constructive day on the job. Now, in the building of Walt Disney World, designers found the workday in the South was quite different. Due to the heat and humidity, the workers labored at a slower pace, or sometimes not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Roy, as you can imagine, had no patience for this. Marvin Davis recalled the day he joined Roy on an unannounced walk through the contemporary hotel. It wasn't a planned thing because we didn't want people to know we were coming. It wasn't lunchtime, but there were guys lying all around on their backs, leaning over for a sip of coffee or something, with their feet in the air. As we came through, so help me God, they didn't move. They just stayed there. We had to ask them to get out of the way so we could get through. This just infuriated Roy. When we got back to the office, Roy said, whoever those guys are, see that they are fired. As if Roy didn't have enough to do with Walt Disney Productions and the construction of Walt Disney World, he also had the Cal Arts Project to contend with. Cal Arts proved to be more frustrating for Roy than Walt Disney World. Although Walt Disney World was large and incredibly more complex, it could be understood and easily controlled. Roy's decisions were law, and everyone knew that. By comparison, the California Institute of the Arts was a small campus that would accommodate less than 1,000 students and faculty. However, Roy was now entering the world of academia a world he was completely unfamiliar with. On the project, it was not possible to make unilateral decisions. Now he had to seek approval of a board of directors and work with a sometimes irritable faculty and student body. The toll, this toll uh, t- uh, that was taken on, Walt was noti- on Roy was noticeable. In later years, Edna Disney sometimes referred to Cal Arts as the place that killed my husband. Hmm. See, and thinking about something
1: like that from that perspective, obviously Cal Arts has had such an impact on Disney today with the the all the people who have attended school there that we've talked about on previous episodes. Way back when, it's to I mean, if it did kill Roy. Would it be worth it to not have him so heavily involved to keep him around in other projects
0: longer? Yeah, I but mean, this, the, yeah, but this was Walt's dream, yeah, as well. And Roy was going to see Walt's dreams through to the end because he's a good yeah. brother. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Now, Harrison Buzz Price and his company, Economic Research Associates or ERA, conducted several surveys to determine the feasibility and location of Calarts. Looking back, Buzz recalled, After Walt died, Roy had the job of implementing a bequest and a commitment. It was a tough time to build a school. There was a lot of flack. A lot of people in the city wondered why the hell were we doing it. Dorothy Chandler, the wife of Los Angeles Times publisher Norman Chandler and a patroness of the arts, won the campus downtown. No one understood Walt had a mission, and it was a smart one. Many guys in the corporation thought it was a stupid idea to take the assets of time and money represented by the corporation and to throw them into this strange thing that Walt wanted to do. Roy never for a minute bought that message. Roy was the lonely man supporting that school after Walt died. I think CalArts took more of his time and energy than the Magic Kingdom in Florida. The corporation was in place to do that job. At first, the only supporters of CalArts were Roy Disney, Buzz Price, who would go on to serve on the board of directors for more than 35 years, and Lulu Mae Von Hagen, the patroness of the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, who had first given Walt the idea of a college of the arts. Other supporters included Mickey Clark, who was an attorney at WED, and studio attorney Luther Marr, and soon outside directors were added to the board. At the time of Walt's passing, a model of the CalArts building had been created, and the Disney Studios movie location ranch, Golden Oak, in the north San Fernando Valley had been chosen as the site. But after a geological survey indicated there were potential seismic dangers with that site, Roy and Buzz negotiated with the agricultural and development company Newhall Land and Farming for 50 acres at $5,000 an acre, this land was deemed more seismically sound. Now, under Roy's supervision, and with Walt's endowment of half his estate, more than $40 million, the school headquarters, which followed Walt's plan of everything under one roof, began construction. Because construction was delayed by strikes, the first year of classes would be held at a former Catholic girls' school a few miles away. (laughs) villa cabrini which was converted to meet cal arts needs that's funny now the new college of the arts opened the doors of its temporary location in september 1970 both faculty and students were caught up in the excitement of their adventure of being pioneers in american education the buildings were functional and appropriate for the sylvan setting the campus setting was peaceful and away from traffic and commerce. It was ideal for nurturing the expression of artistic talent. Sadly, <laughs> nothing of the sort happened in that era of the Chicago riots, freedom marches, campus sit-ins, Vietnam War protests, the sexual revolution, the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and Flower Children. This was the turn on tune in dropout generation. Mm-hmm. The first campus incident occurred when young female students began showing up at the swimming pool without swimsuits. After swimming in the pool, they'd sun themselves on the pool deck to the delight of the male students who chose to not wear their swimming trunks. Unconcerned faculty members only commented they're artists after all. Oh, I didn't realize that that's a legitimate excuse. Yeah, there you go, Craig. <laughs> I could start using that one. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, yeah, when you're when you're walking around Magic Kingdom nude doing videos, yeah, you can just say
1: You don't understand. I'm an artist.
0: Just <laughs> so like, "Craig, I'm just happy to be here." Exactly. <laughs> um, when 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 the board of directors learned about the nudity at the pool, they were horrified. Um, Roy Disney was appalled. This was not what Walt had in mind for his college. When the issue came up for discussion at a board meeting, the outside board members demanded action be taken. What is wrong with viewing the human body? asked a photography teacher who was also a board member. He launched into a lecture on the beauty of the human figure whilst removing his coat, shirt, shoes, pants, and undershorts, until he stood naked in front of the full board, which included Roy, Lulu Mae Von Hagen, and other women. The chairman, who was also a school dean, gazed at the teacher's naked body and said, What have you got to be so proud about? <laughs> the, the meeting oh. erupted into chaos. <laughs> no, I, I can't
1: imagine why. <laughs>
0: oh my goodness. Oh gosh, the, the wild... Sixties and seventies. Yeah,
1: I can I can report happily that that is not what going to school was like in uh, the the mid two thousands.
0: Much yeah. different. Well, and I was still off at a, a you know Catholic old boys' school, yeah. so none of this touched me. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, now, um, now, nude swimming was banned, but the incident was reported in the newspapers, causing great embarrassment to Roy. And his family, and Lillian Disney and her family. Roy decided to rescind his commitment for another gift to Cal Arts of several million dollars. When one of the school deans was told of the incident and the resulting loss of money, he declared, My God, that's 30 million an inch. <laughs> Thievery on campus was another problem. Cameras, tape machines, electronic equipment, musical instruments, pianos disappeared from classrooms. Students believed everything was common property. <laughs> the college provost, Mel Powell, determined no meetings would be held unless there was student representation. He reasoned if students understood the expense of replacing the equipment, they would realize they are only hurting themselves by stealing. Roy agreed with the reasoning, and the thievery did diminish. The sweet smell of marijuana wafted through the student dormitories and faculty offices. Unidentified dogs roamed the campus in packs. Protest meetings for various causes were held at regular intervals. Student unrest was fermented by members of the faculty and administration. Although although Roy ran a studio full of hundreds of artists, he did not understand the artistic mind and temperament. He could confidently negotiate the most complicated of business deals, but artists baffled him. Roy grew increasingly frustrated and considered firing the entire administration, but discovered this wasn't easy in an academic setting. This wasn't the studio where he could dismiss those who were at odds with company policy, something he rarely did. Roy was seething, recalled Bud Price, Buzz Price. Those two Missouri boys, Walt and Roy, could laugh and joke and tell stories, but they had been brought up right. They didn't go for that kind of nonsense. Roy decided he was going to dump the school. He asked me to make a deal with USC to take it over. Buzz took the top officials of the University of Southern California on a tour of the CalArts buildings still under construction. They were very impressed, and it appeared a deal was possible. Roy assigned Buzz to negotiate with Justin Dart, chairman of the USC Board of Trustees and president of the Rexall Drug and Chemical Company. Buzz informed Dart, Roy says he will give you fifteen million dollars cash and the school, lock, stock, and barrel, if you make it a school of the arts for SC. Tell him we want twenty-one million, Dart replied. When Buzz reported Dart's message to Roy, Roy responded, Tell Justin Dart to go fudge himself, only he didn't say fudge. (laughs) <laughs> to, to quote a, a beloved Christmas um, film, <laughs> it was the only time Buzz had heard Roy use that kind of language. After an unsuccessful attempt to engage Pepperdine University, Roy decided to persevere with Cal Arts and put up with all the headaches. In time, the top administrators were fired, the flower children fled to the communes. And the school became a prestigious institution. Regrettably, Roy didn't live long enough to see his efforts pay off. Two days before Roy died, Don Tatum, seeing how much Roy was upset over Cal Arts, asked, Why don't you give it up? God damn it, Roy, Don, Roy <laughs> angrily replied. <laughs> Walt wanted this school, and I'm going to get it for him. Meanwhile, back in Florida, Despite all the construction activity deep inside the property, very little signs of it could be seen from the outside. Along the northern boundary, Disney had set up management offices and double-wide trailers. Down the street were two businesses, Jock's Corner and Estucky's Family Restaurant. Jock's Corner was a convenience store where the construction workers would pick up hot and cold sandwiches and beer. Stuckey's mainly served tourists heading to or from the beach, and locals who gathered to speculate on what Disney was doing deep inside the woods and share misinformation. Disney decided to open a preview center so the company could inform the public themselves, and to gain experience in hiring and employing staff in Florida. Disney built a 1,000-square-foot, 1, one-story white building near the north entrance to the property. In a large theater in the center of the building, visitors would watch a film on the key features of the resort as they stood around a huge model of the resort. Spotlights in the ceiling above the model would highlight the Magic Kingdom, the resort hotels, and other resort areas as they were discussed in the film. In a hallway around the building hung concept art. And the hallway led to an office for Sandy Quinn, the head of marketing, where he could meet with potential sponsors, stockholders, and VIPs. And it also led to a conference room, souvenir stand, and restrooms. 400 young women applied, and 14 were selected by Valerie Watson, who had been Miss Disneyland in 1962 and had gone on to be a VIP hostess at Disneyland and the New York World's Fair before joining WED to work on the Florida Project. She was promoted and transferred to Walt Disney World to establish the Guest Relations Department. The 14 women Valerie Watson selected to staff the Preview Center became the first full-time staff members in guest contact positions for Walt Disney World. Valerie Watson recalled those early days. The employees in Florida were refreshingly wholesome, eager, and enthusiastic. Originally, it was an agrarian area. There wasn't a degree of sophistication. It was a very educational and heartwarming experience. Hmm.
1: What happened?
0: <laughs> she also talked about how, you know, there were no major cities or anything around that many of the young women like weren't even accustomed to wearing shoes. Are you on serious? A daily basis, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, because again, they, they they worked, you know, out in the in the orchards and, and fields yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Good point. Now, a small souvenir stand was set up, which allowed Disney to test market the popularity of various types of merchandise. And visitors could also purchase park tickets and make future reservations for the contemporary and Polynesian hotels. Marketing Vice President Jack Lindquist asked the preview center's staff to track the license plates in the parking lot so he would know where the visitors were from. Now, at Disneyland's Carefree Corner, guests could sign guest books, which enabled Disney to collect their mailing addresses. And the Preview Center hostesses invited guests to sign a similar guest book to create a year one club. And Disney would then be able to mail promotional materials to them. The hostesses were updated weekly on what was new with the resort. Photos and artist renderings were regularly replaced with new material, and the press would visit regularly to keep up with the project. Now, the preview center was the first operational building to open on the Lake Buena Vista property and the first to use the oversized water and sewage lines that had been installed to accommodate the future five high-rise resorts, shops, and restaurants that were in the planning stages. In the first couple of days the preview center was open, a lady used the restroom facilities. She flushed a toilet, and a two-foot column of water blew her off the toilet and into the air. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, this is like a little geyser. It's, um,
1: best, it's a- the first attraction to ever truly come to Disney. <laughs>
0: Really, a, a, a themed washroom. Uh, the, the, the pipes were too large for the little preview center, and the water pressure was reduced. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she got a free ticket to the park or something.
1: I, I would hope that's the lease that she gets.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened nowadays?
1: I, I mean, it's hilarious, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, there'd be litigation involved. Just a little bit. <clears throat> Now, in its 22 months, the Preview Center welcomed over 1 million visitors. Jack Lindquist reported more than $11 million in tickets to the Magic Kingdom were sold. Based on the interest generated by the Preview Center, Disney changed its first-year attendance forecast from 6 million to 8 million to 10 million guests for its first year. 300 hotel reservations and inquiries came in daily and the convention space was fully booked back-to-back for the first year. Construction of attractions for the Magic Kingdom continued in both Florida and California. Some attractions were fully constructed in Glendale, California, and shipped piece-by-piece to Florida to be reassembled. When Disneyland's Haunted Mansion was under construction, the Imagineers built two of everything— and set the spare components aside for the Magic Kingdom.
1: So, along with that, too, uh, they, they did build them, two and two. Wait, Where did the decision, then, to come in to change? How, like, uh, whenever you're walking past the portraits that change with the, the lightning flashes, at ours, then, we... I mean, it's the same portraits, obviously, but we're riding through. When did decisions like that come into play?
0: Oh, that didn't come until later. Okay. I mean, much later. So, um, with the portraits, but mainly because I, I don't want to ruin any of the magic, but mainly because they, uh, the, uh, you know, our, our haunted mansion at Disneyland, you know, you, you go down exactly, and in the haunted mansion at Disney world, there, Walt Disney world, there wasn't that need. And so, cause it's actually built up because of the water table. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there wasn't the the stretching room at Walt well, Disney World serves a different purpose, yeah, than the one at Disneyland. So that's so that's why you you immediately board the Doom Buggies All right. because with us
1: you have to walk have to, under
0: you, the you train have to leave track the park. Then, yeah, yeah, and that wasn't necessary there. Yeah, okay, yeah,
1: makes yeah. sense now that I don't know why I just didn't say that to myself and then think about it. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, and then and then, uh, well, I on the sixty years of Disneyland show, I talk about what some of the original concepts were for the Haunted Mansion, and so originally it was a walk-through attraction, and the show building started to be constructed as that. Yeah, originally it was going to be contained fully in the mansion building at Disneyland, and then as it as it you know gradually changed, the concepts changed. Um, it, you know. It, they realized okay we we need we need to do something differently here and guests had to be transported yeah yeah so so now a 50-year-old carousel was purchased from Olympic Park in Maplewood, New Jersey, shipped to Northern California for refurbishment and then sent to the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank to be repainted before being shipped to Florida for reassembly now, attraction pieces and other components were shipped from around the world. Ski lift equipment for the Skyway came from Switzerland, monorail components came from Germany, and costume wigs came from Guatemala. Construction workers quickly realized working for Walt Disney Productions was unlike anything they had done before. The Disney designers demanded perfection, and making post-deadline alterations to plans was the norm. The workers also learned close enough, which was an acceptable standard on their previous jobs, was unacceptable at Disney. Subcontractors were furious when they were told to tear apart and rebuild the framework for the carousel because it had been built two inches off from the Disney specs. The construction crews purposely slowed down work so they would be required to work overtime at time and a half because they knew Disney wanted to meet the October 1, 1971 opening day. Most of the workers were difficult to manage and prone to start fights. Disney's newly hired security force, outnumbered by the construction workers 50 to 1, were armed in case of an emergency. The J.B. Allen Construction Company, uh, well, company who was managing the project, was frustrated with Disney constantly changing the blueprints. Claiming the changes were causing extra work, they stated they would be unable to meet the October 1st, 1971 deadline and suggested the opening be postponed. According to Dick Nunes, Well, that was just not an option for us. We had to open on time. The well was dry. We had run out of money. Disney needed an experienced team who could complete the project on time. On a Friday afternoon, early in 1971, Disney fired J.B. Allen. Through some fancy financial maneuvering, Disney leased much of the equipment, set up its own construction company, the Buena Vista Construction Company, over the weekend with Joe Fowler as the manager and took over the job of finishing the work. Everyone who worked for J.B. Allen was moved over to the Disney payroll. Overnight, all the J.B. Allen signs on property were repainted with Buena Vista construction in time to greet the workers arriving Monday morning. Wow. Yeah, and uh, there was... um, yeah, there, there, there. That was that was amazing. I think they did all that in one weekend.
1: I know that's that's pretty incredible. Just yeah,
0: and such- and then they found out how much. One of the reasons things were were over, you know, going over budget. For instance, because they were on Disney payroll, they had to come in personally and collect their checks and show ID. So the first payroll date when it was, and of course, it was now the Disney payroll company mm-hmm. uh, payroll department. They had 60 leftover checks, payroll checks, that were made out to people. And they discovered that the J.B. Allen payroll master had created fake workers with hours and was pocketing the money. Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: (laughs) sometimes it's best to just keep things in-house for that reason.
0: That's right. Do it yourself. Yep. So by May 1971, Card Walker and Don Tatum began to worry that J.B. Allen may have been correct and the resort would not be ready for its October 1st, 1971 opening date. They decided to bring in the man who had earned the reputation for getting things done at Disneyland, Dick Nunes, the head of park operations. Nunes agreed to take on the challenge if all the resources of the company were at his disposal. Walker and Tatum agreed, telling Nunes to do what he had to do and to not worry about budgets. His priority was to get the place open on October 1st. We got all our energies going in one direction, recalled Nunes in an interview with the Orlando Sentinel. But we knew it was going to be a race. I arranged for the construction crews to come out one Sunday so their families could see what Dad was building. That helped morale. Then heading into the final months, we realized nobody was going to come to work on Labor Day. We privately cursed that, but publicly we said, well, okay, bring your family out then. So they picnic and played out here all day, and you know, it was amazing the amount of work we got done the rest of that week. August 15th was set aside to dedicate the castle and hold a banquet to honor Imagineer John Hench, the lead designer of the castle. Of course, the banquet had to be held in a restaurant inside the castle. The hundred and sixty six seat King Stephan's Banquet Hall was designed as an elegant dining hall with white, fine tablecloths, but operate as a fast service restaurant. Nunes notified the food division's Dale Burner a few weeks before the celebration. Burner told Nunes the restaurant wasn't finished. Get it done, said Nunes. <laughs> Burner pressured the contractors to give them an operable restaurant in time for the banquet as he and his team frantically rushed to track down the food and furnishings with just a few days left before the banquet the specially designed silverware and pewter plates hadn't arrived Supervisor Dave Vermillion traced the shipment to a truck in Alabama He had it pulled off the truck, loaded aboard an airplane, and met the plane at the airport to pick up the utensils. All the company executives from California arrived in Florida for the event. In the afternoon, Roy Disney took a tour of the property and was disheartened by what he saw. Roy asked Howard Rowland, the head of planning, to escort him through the hotel's. Roland had been sending memos to Burbank saying that despite U.S. Steel's claims, there was no way they would complete the contemporary hotel on time. As Roland took Roy through the contemporary, they had to step around and over construction workers playing cards and taking naps. Roy was furious, but was determined not to let it ruin the banquet.
1: I feel like the moral to the story is no matter what happened, Roy's going to be furious. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just, it seems like the recurring trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What goes on in Florida, Greg? <laughs> it's oh, it's a awful, awful place. Honestly, <laughs>
0: no redeeming factors about it. And that's why you live there, exactly. <laughs> so. Now, after the dinner, Card Walker and everyone joined in a champagne toast and to, to dedicate the castle to Sir John of Hench. Next, Roy rose and with emotion honored the one man who more than anyone would have wanted to be there, his little brother, Walt. Once again, everyone raised their champagne glasses in a toast to Walt Disney. Then the executives went down into the Magic Kingdom and rode the carousel. The next morning, the the WED liaison to the hotels was relieved of his duties and replaced by Roland. It was his job to get the hotels finished on time. Similar to what had happened during the construction of Disneyland, most of Tomorrowland was placed on hold and put on a five-year plan for completion. Late in the summer, John Hench discovered that all the paint throughout the park appeared differently than he had intended. Since the sun appeared brighter in California, colors that seemed right in Glendale looked too hot or too cold in Florida. Hench reformulated all the color schemes and had workmen begin repainting everything. Uh. With less than a month to go before park opening, some attractions had not yet arrived. The submarines had fallen behind schedule, so WED sent vehicle specialist Bob Gurr to Tampa, where the submarines had been moved, to make sure the subs were delivered on time. Gurr discovered wiring drawings were inaccurate and had to be corrected on the spot. Specified parts hadn't arrived, equipment arrived that hadn't been ordered, and the hulls didn't match the diagrams provided by WED's George McGinnis. As the subs were completed and shipped to the Magic Kingdom, Gurr discovered the parking lot trams built by United Tractor had been delivered on time, but only three of the monorail trains would be ready for opening day. Worried about long lines, especially if thunderstorms forced the closure of the monorails, Nunes decided the parking lot trams would also take guests all the way from the parking lot to the front gate. However, it was quickly discovered the trams were not up to the task of climbing hills and running continuously for 15 to 18 hours each day. I can believe that. Yeah, because I guess there, there's that hill when they have to go, I guess they go under an overpass or something from the parking lot, or, and then up yeah. to the Magic Kingdom, and it couldn't make it up yeah. that grade. Nunes lost his temper and ordered the president of United Tractor and his chief engineer to catch the first flight to Orlando and figure out how to keep the tractors running. When they could not come up with a solution that met the approval of Nunes, he handed the problem over to Bob Gurr. Gurr designed a special power pack that could keep a tractor racing along at two miles per hour at wide open throttle. Nunes thought this would work told Gurr to have the machinists build 17 units in 12 days and send the bill to United Tractor. The final few days before the resort's opening were a frantic blur for the Walt Disney World team. Everyone was put to work doing whatever needed to get done to get the Magic Kingdom and the resort's presentable for opening day. Walt had selected the opening day of Disneyland in the middle of summer of 1955 on a July Sunday with a live telecast. With the sweltering heat, attractions breaking down, and significantly more guests than expected, that day was referred to as Black Sunday within the company. For Walt Disney World's first day of operation, Friday, October 1st, A school day on the slowest day of the week of the slowest month of the year was selected. All of October was declared preview month, and the grand opening festivities were scheduled for three weeks later, over three days, with most television sequences pre-recorded. Dick Nunes recounted the opening day. Well, it finally got to be opening day. And what happened? Not much. <laughs> Not nearly as much as most folks thought would happen. Not even 10,000 guests, and they seemed downright overwhelmed when they bumped into 5,000 employees. Everyone smiling from ear to ear.
1: And now we dream of the days where we get to, you know, hopefully be in a park with only 10,000 guests. I mean, because that's <laughs> still, that's no one. That is so empty.
0: Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> now, now you have to pay for special after-hours tickets to to get in a park with that many people. Yeah, and even then, it's it's still,
1: and you know, it, it's worth it. But it's like I just I wish it was during the day. Not right. because I can't stay up at night, but I just I I can't imagine that few people in the Magic Kingdom in the middle of the day be. I'm sure it'd be a heck of a time.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't need fast pass Nope (laughs) Um, A a small army of Florida Highway Patrol troopers Recruited for extra duty in something of a statewide frenzy Warned to expect historic traffic tie-ups Spent most of the day counting turkey buzzards (laughs) Red Cross officials Staffing a dozen or so first aid tents along I-4 Treated mostly themselves for chigger bites (laughs) We told the board members, we told the press, we told everyone that we had deliberately picked the slowest month, October of the year, the slowest day of the week, Friday to open. We wanted to work things out slowly at first, but the papers kept saying we were going to get 100,000 or 200,000 or 500,000. I think a Detroit paper picked two million, and if we didn't get that many people, they predicted we'd close in a year. Now, we're human. We read all those headlines and got terribly confused about what might really happen. I remember seeing a copter out there early that morning to check the traffic on I 4. The pilot radioed back that there was a massive fleet of cars barreling down the highway toward Disney World. We thought, holy Jesus, this is it. Then all the cars turned off at the employee entrance. It was just the Disney people coming to work. <laughs> And that still sounds
1: pretty normal if you've ever experienced yeah. that time of day.
0: And <laughs> yeah, the newness went on. Um, I think we had 8,500 or 9,000 that first day. The finance guys were counting their beads. The 6 o'clock newscasters were saying we had blown it. <coughs> Disney's stock dropped 9 points. And hey, I felt pretty good. The day had worked out just about how we wanted it. I said to anyone who would listen that we shouldn't worry until the holidays. I said if we don't have to close the gates the day after Thanksgiving, then we'll be in big trouble. Roy Disney was angered by the reaction of Wall Street and the media and their claims that the Disney company had underperformed on its opening day. Disney stock prices fell because it was believed the company had made an error in constructing Walt Disney World. Roy called his top executives into a meeting on October 2nd and ranted over the opening day figures. They attempted to explain their reasoning for selecting the slowest day of the slowest month, and it had been approved. The executives went on to explain that tourism would increase when the snowbirds began to flee the northern storms, and the locals were not expected because they had been treated to three nights of previews as a goodwill gesture but their arguments made no headway with Roy. Roy moved on to another serious matter, the excessive construction bills. He accused the top men of hiding expenditures from him. Explanations would not be accepted. Roy could be heard from down the hall. No one had ever seen Roy so angry. (laughs) However, tourists soon began the flood into the park. 400,000 guests in the first month which was ahead of expectations this caused Roy to look towards the dedication ceremony in a much better mood three weeks later over 40,000 guests arrived at the Magic Kingdom on Saturday October 23rd 1971 for the three-day dedication of Walt Disney World it was the end of a long journey and Roy had been there since the beginning when Walt first started mulling over his city of tomorrow. Roy had directed the undercover search for property, and he had slowed the project only as he recovered from the devastating blow of Walt's death. Then Roy moved forward resolutely and deliberately, always keeping in mind of what his brother had envisioned. As the decisions piled up, Roy became increasingly aware of the burden of his years as he looked forward to retirement and spending time with Edna and the grandchildren. Roy did not show this to outsiders, but with increasing concern, Edna could see the toll of being the sole authority for the direction of the company that was taking on Roy. On October 25th, dedication was one of the finest examples of Disney showmanship fans had ever seen. Meredith Wilson led a 1,076-piece marching band down Main Street to Cinderella Castle as they played 76 trombones. Musicians from 60 countries formed the World Symphony Orchestra conducted by Arthur Fiedler. A 1500 voice choir sang When You Wish Upon a Star and other Disney classics. Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, and all the other Disney stars waved to the crowd. The two Disney families were recognized, Roy, Edward, and Patty and their four children, and Lillian, Diane, Ron Miller, and their seven children, Sharon, and Bill Lund with three children. Roy stepped up to the microphone and thanked all the people who had built Walt Disney World. Then he remembered his brother. My brother Walt and I went into business together almost a half century ago. And he was really, in my opinion, truly a genius, creative, with great determination, singleness of purpose and drive. And through his entire life, He was never pushed off his course or diverted by other things. Walt probably had fewer secrets than any man, because he was always talking to whoever would listen. Talking of story ideas or entertainment projects, my banker once said, How is such and such a picture progressing? And I said, Joe, I don't think we have a picture of that name in work. He repeated the name and said he saw little sketches of the story. I said, Joe, Walt was just using you as a good guinea pig to see how you would react to the story. We don't have any picture like that in work. And that was the way Walt went through his life. Standing next to Mickey Mouse, who Roy had asked to be beside him because Mickey was the closest person they had to Walt, Roy Disney read the dedication plaque that would be enshrined on the ground near the Town Square flagpole on Main Street, USA. This was not just a dedication of the Magic Kingdom, but all of Walt Disney World. Walt Disney World is a tribute to the philosophy and life of Walter Elias Disney, and to the talents, the dedication, and the loyalty of the entire Disney organization that made Walt Disney's dream come true. Many Wal- May Walt Disney World bring joy and inspiration and new knowledge to all who come to this happy place, a magic kingdom where the young at heart of all ages can laugh and play and learn together. Dedicated this 25th day of October, 1971, Roy O. Disney. Later, Roy, Edna, and their family watched the television special to celebrate the opening of Walt Disney World from their Bay Hill house. The program featured Hollywood celebrities with song and dance routines in major areas of the park. It had been taped in empty streets and attractions. Roy asked, where are the people? Walt disliked photos of an empty Disneyland and never wanted photos of an empty park made public. When Disneyland was being built, Walt had said people would be a major factor in the enjoyment of the park. Roy suddenly began weeping. It was partly due to the empty glitz on television for Walt Disney World. Partly it came from exhaustion. It was over. The park had been constructed. The surrounding area prepared for whatever the future would bring. The friction, the worry about money, the overwhelming responsibilities, the the sorrow over the loss of Walt, all had taken their toll. Now Roy could return to California and pursue the goal he had set for himself seven years prior, retirement. He would never return to Florida. Back in his California office, Roy was pleased with the attendance reports from Walt Disney World. Now management was faced with the problems of success, how to make parking more accessible, and how to handle the larger crowds so all guests would still be happy at the end of the day. These were good problems to have. All of this was tempered by Roy's concern over expenditures that had been made without his oversight. He blamed several of his top executives, especially Card Walker, and contemplated how he could rein him in. Roy arranged for himself and Edna to sail on the SS Monterey to Australia for a February 20th sailing. He felt he owed Edna a leisurely cruise across the Pacific for all the trying years that followed Walt's passing. Patty and Roy Edward Disney were in Florida when they received the news that their 14-year-old son, Roy Patrick, had climbed out on the roof of the family's new Toluca Lake home with his brother Tim, stepped onto a canvas awning, and had fallen through it to the ground. An ambulance was called. Roy Patrick was transported to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Medical staff worked on the teenager for two hours and reported to the family, He's alive, but we don't know what will happen to him. Roy and Edna were at the hospital, along with Patty Disney's parents. Roy, Roy's face had lost all its color. St. Joseph's was the same hospital where Walt had died six years before, and now Roy's oldest grandson was here, barely hanging on to life. Roy Patrick remained in a coma, and his grandfather visited him daily. On Friday afternoon, December 17th, Roy appeared reluctant to leave his office. He signed some papers, poured himself his usual scotch and water, and reminisced with his secretary, Madeline Wheeler, about the good times at the studio and his plans to fully retire in a year. But I may stay on another six months. That would be my 50th year in the picture business. Will you stick with me? Madeline said she would. As Roy left the office, he turned and said, I may see you at the Disneyland Christmas parade. Roy had decided the family needed a break from the sorrow of Roy Patrick's condition. Roy and Edna would take the three other grandchildren to the Christmas parade. As they prepared to leave for Disneyland on Sunday morning, Roy put down his hat and coat and told Edna, I don't feel like going down there. I don't think I'll go. Roy had been complaining for some time about something like a cloud over his vision. His eye doctor had examined him but wanted to do some blood tests. Roy didn't take it seriously and postponed the tests. Roy Disney returned to bed. Edna didn't want to disappoint the grandchildren who were looking forward to Disneyland. She phoned Roy Edward and asked if he wanted to go to the park with her and the children since his father didn't want to go. Roy Edward agreed to go with his mother and the children and Patty would remain at home in case there was a change in Roy Patrick's condition. Patty called her father-in-law twice during the day and although he sounded grouchy, he said he was feeling all right. At Disneyland, Edna and Roy felt uneasy throughout the day, and as soon as the parade was over, they hurried home with the children. Susan Disney, who is the granddaughter of Edna and Roy Disney, recalled the events when they arrived home. Before we left the house grandma had put a pot on the stove with two cans of soup on in it, in case grandpa got hungry. When we walked into the kitchen, I saw it was still there. It hadn't been touched. I knew something was wrong, and I made a beeline to the bedroom. He was lying on the floor. I called my dad and grandmother, and they came in. Grandpa said to her, I called you, and I called you, and you didn't come. They lifted Roy to the bed, and his son stood over him and said, Dad, if you can hear me, say something. His father opened his eyes and muttered, What? Then he fell into a coma. Once again, Roy and Walt's family gathered on the fourth floor of St. Joseph's Hospital. Roy lay in room 421, his grandson directly below in room 321. Roy's condition was deemed hopeless. The Catholic sisters sat with Edna and explained that her husband's brain was dead, and only the life-sustaining apparatus was keeping him alive. Edna gave her consent to discontinue all efforts to keep Roy alive. Roy Oliver Disney passed away on December 20, 1971, of a massive brain hemorrhage at the age of 78. The obituaries were modest in comparison to Walt's. Due to Roy's modest nature, little was known of his accomplishments, how he had rescued the studio from insolvency multiple times, How he had always found the financing for Walt's grand dreams. How he had kept the company on sound footing. How he had fulfilled his brother's final dream of a college of the arts. His greatest achievement was Walt Disney World, without leaving the company with any debt. President Nixon sent a message to Edna. Our thoughts and prayers are with you and Pat, and I share your sorrow at the loss of your husband and our dear friend may you be strengthened in the years ahead by your pride and remembrance of the happy moments you had together patty disney obtained permission from the cardinal for the funeral to be held outside the altar at her parish church saint charles edna insisted the casket be open in keeping with midwest tradition Two days later, after the three Disney grandchildren had their Christmas at home, Edna drove up to their house in her big gold Cadillac, its trunk filled with wrapped presents. This was the tradition she and and Roy had enjoyed every Christmas day. The presents were signed from Grandma and Grandpa. A week later, Roy Patrick began to regain his senses. He looked out the hospital window and saw the studio flag was at half-mast. What's that for? he asked his parents. Your grandfather has died, was their response. A year would pass before the boy returned to normal. That's
1: such a sad end to the story. (laughs) It is. It is. And and the end of an era. Yeah, I mean, it's... Especially for everyone following along who didn't know that much about Roy and everything surrounding it. I mean, there was, uh, at least for me too, there was always that hope that, you know, he, he deserved to have a peaceful life after finishing up all those accomplishments and, you know, going out gracefully and for everything to just kind of go downhill so quickly with the Disney's. It's just sad, but you know, I know it seemed it seems so cruel. It does, but you know, that's that's the way life works sometimes and uh, Yeah. You know, they they got their luck back a little bit here and there. So Roy Patrick's oh, still yeah. with Ed- us.
0: So mm-hmm. Edna Edna lived on for quite a while. Yeah. Driving her big old Cadillac at forty miles per hour in the fast lane <laughs> of <to> the freeways. <laughs> Wondering why are people so good? Called darn in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's what she would say. <laughs> anyway. Now, now, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Building a Company, O. Disney and the Creation of an Entertainment Empire by Bob Thomas, Reality Land, True Life Adventures at Walt Disney World by David Koenig, Secret Stories of Walt Disney World, Things You Never Knew You Never Knew by Jim Corcus. Now, there are many, many more stories about Walt Disney World that we did not have time to go into in our recent episodes of Connecting with Walt. I'm sure that many of you are sitting out there saying, but we didn't talk about this. We didn't talk about that. And um, Craig and I will share more stories about Walt Disney World, the people who built it, and the Magic Kingdom's realms and attractions in much more detail. Um, of course, we will also continue to bring you stories of Walt Disney and those who worked with him, along with other surprises. Yes. So, so Craig, we, we won't be back on connecting with Walt until July. What, what plans do you have for the summer? Oh, just a
1: whole lot of stuff going on with our big mega meet and just a bunch of projects. and uh, So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a crazy time before we're back in July, but uh, you can follow along with all the madness, uh, of course, on the universal edition of the Diz Unplugged with me and then the Dis Unplugged disney world edition which i think needs to be changed to walt disney world edition i don't i don't know I how that's gonna happen um I,
0: I don't know if it'll fit in the logo
1: <laughs> i don't know if it'll fit in the logo and i don't know if i have that uh authority over changing the name of the podcast that's been going on for 10 years now uh but <laughs> it, at the end of the day yeah you can you can find me on those oh. and uh of course always tweeting away at on Twitter, wow! I don't know how I was finishing that one up. What about you, Michael?
0: Well, yeah, Carol, and I have quite a bit going on. We are actually leaving for Alani about in a couple of weeks, so we're, we're very excited. We have never been yeah, there; they're gonna love before. it. Oh uh, yeah, that's what I understand. And, and we're going with some other dizzers, so we're very pleased about that. To just relax, and and we um, of course we will. We are planning to be out there in July. For the big tenth anniversary, yes, you know of the Diz unplugged. Very, very proud to be a to be a small part of of that. It's all very exciting of of the phenomenon that is the Diz. So um, and, and I'm sure I'm, I'm hoping I'll bump into people at the parks at you know Disneyland, uh, Walt Disney World, and of course at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Yes. So and you can find me every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Joe malata Willie, and Tony Spatel. where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's park that started it all, and also other Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum. And we get into even more Disney history. So listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. And you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplug.com. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. And Instagram, Michael Diz. So this is it for another season of Connecting with Walt. Thank you, Craig. And thank you to all our listeners for making us a part of your day. And remember... I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.